And I'm going to, we're going to read the entire chapter today. So let's start in verse number one and let the rest of the folks trickle in, I guess, as we move through the chapter. Joshua chapter two, verse one. And Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wish not whence they were. It came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords, and as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof, and she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And the man answered her, Our life for yours, if ye utter not this our business. And it shall be, when the Lord hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may ye go your way. And the men said unto her, We will, we will be blameless of this thine oath which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless, and whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then we will be quit of thine oath which thou hast made us to swear." And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. In the window. And they went and came unto the mountain, and abode there three days until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. So the two men returned and descended from the mountain, and passed over, and came to Joshua the son of Nun, 
and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. And let's pray. Father, again, it's a privilege as always to study your word. I pray that you'd give us wisdom, uh, have your word speak to our hearts, and may we uh, just seek to change those things in our life that are unpleasing to you, Lord, that we would uh, be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a very familiar story to, to most of us, and so a lot of it is, is not going to be anything new for you. In verse number one, uh, we've just ended in, we've, the, the first chapter has just, for the most part, been God's uh, word of encouragement to Joshua, God's reminder to Joshua that he is with him and that the Lord has promised him success. And so Joshua knows that he has God's presence with him. He knows that he has God's promise. And yet, in verse number one, we see that Joshua still is careful to develop a plan. And, you know, that's, that's what God would desire from each of us. Um, some may have been tempted after receiving such a reassuring word from God that, that we had in chapter 1, where, where God says, I am going to drive out the inhabitants. I am going to give you the victory. I am going to give you success. Some would be tempted to just kind of sit back and think, well, God has it all under control. I don't need to do anything. And yet that's not the message that the Bible has for us. Um, that wasn't Joshua's attitude as he puts together a plan. We're going to see that all throughout the book of Joshua. Joshua is very proactive. Um, certainly in the New Testament, we have the same command. We are to rely on God. God works through us. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 15:58, we're told, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's work for us to do. And so we, we can't just sit back and say, well, God's going God's to do it all. He is. God is going to do it, and He is going to be the one that gets the glory and the credit for having done it, but He wants to work through us. And so Joshua puts together a plan. Now, Joshua knew exactly what he was asking these men to do. Uh, he's sending them on a mission that would have been very similar to the one that he had been sent on 38 years earlier. And, you know, as long as there has been war, there has been espionage. And so he's sending them out to uh, survey the landscape to see what they're up against. Uh, he's got a job for them to do. And certainly their physical abilities would have played into this selection. Um, you know, I, I have little doubt they would have been the best of the best. You know, maybe, if you will, the Rambos of their day or the, the elites, the seals or whatever you want to call them. But these men also would have been very qualified spiritually. And I think we see that. Jump back to verse 14. This is the men responding to Rahab. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if ye utter not this our business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. These were faithful men. They believed that God was going to give them a little land. And 
I think Joshua would have learned some valuable lessons 38 years earlier from the, the ten spies that accompanied him that came back and gave an evil report. And so he would have been, Joshua would have been very careful about how he selected these two men. He would have made sure that, which I think he did, and I think we'll see that, we are seeing that through the story, not only in verse 14, but in other verses, that these men were faithful men and they were men of integrity. They were men who kept their word, as we see, you know, in the latter part of the chapter, how they uh, made this promise to Rahab. And then, you know, as we work our way through the book, we'll see that they kept that promise. So I, I think that their spiritual condition probably at least matched or exceeded their physical condition. Now, uh, you know, again, I think the selection of these men was very important. I think, you know, there's probably a lesson here for us. Um, you know, sometimes we may we may not be called upon to do a particular task because maybe we haven't demonstrated the kind of faithfulness that is required to complete that task. And these men, I, I think, had probably, um, you know, there were literally hundreds of thousands of men to choose from. And so, you know, the fact that Joshua chose these two men, I think, would be a pretty good indication that they had, you know, they had earned that type of a reputation. The next thing we the other thing, one of the other things we see in verse one is that they came to the house to to the house of uh, Rahab. And of course, you know, the question is, well, how did they arrive at that particular house? Why did they go to that house? And, you know, what we might see as what we might call chance or coincidence was actually the providence of God. And God directs. God intervenes in the, the affairs of this world. God leads. God directs our paths. Um, Friday night, the, the youth group had a progressive dinner. And we went to uh, three houses for... Uh, appetizers and then the main course and then dessert and one of the things that Dan Williams had asked some of the the hosts to do was to give their testimony and that was a real blessing I really enjoyed that I I I hope we do that every year it's it's neat to hear how the Lord saves people when we went to the McCoy's house Dave McCoy shared how that God had uh through his providence, put people in his life that challenged him about his faith and questioned, caused him to question his salvation and caused him to uh, really uh, search within himself whether or not he had a relationship with the Lord. And, you know, as, as Dave indicated, that was God's providence. It wasn't anything that Dave was looking for. Uh, God just happened to put him in in the in a workplace of some men that had gone to this church and so and that's you know that's what God does God's God directed these men to this house it was God's plan that Rahab be saved it certainly wasn't uh, you know anything that you know that, that you know we would want to leave him out of also uh, the question certainly in my mind was um, why are we always reminded that Rahab was a harlot? You know, if you go to uh, the book of Hebrews, it mentions that. If you go to the book of James, it mentions that. The only time she's mentioned in the Bible that it doesn't draw that attention to that is in the genealogy in the book of Matthew. And I, I think there's, there's good reason for that. 
I think God is letting us know that his grace extends to all. Um, she, you know, she's been known as that for 3,500 years. Um, a lot of us would like to leave our, our sins in our past, and we don't want a name or a label attached to us to be drug around with us for the rest of our life. But in her case, she also has, uh, you know, in the book of James, she's called justified. In the book of Hebrews, she's called faithful. She's called a believer. Um, so certainly those things are, are what overshadows the fact that she was a harlot. And, um, you know, the emphasis there is, of course, that she was a harlot. She didn't remain a harlot. Um, God, her, God brought her out of that. And so... You know, I think that that's mentioned. It's a wonderful demonstration of God's grace being extended to somebody who, you know, we might say has committed awful sins, you know, as we have a tendency to categorize things or look at things. And the greatness of sin is no barrier to God's forgiveness. Um, you know, if someone's willing to repent, um, it just it's it's not a barrier. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He was as guilty of murder as almost as if he had committed it himself. And he was certainly appreciative of God's grace. Turn to the book of Luke. I think it's worth our time to take a little bit of a diversion and just kind of underscore the the extension of God's grace. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 hard for me to, I mean, certainly when I read these verses, I, I certainly think of Rahab. I think they, they apply. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, by the way, that's, that's all of us, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Here's the question that Jesus has. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. There's the answer to the question in verse 42. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. 
And they, they, and they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. Now, you can turn back to the book of Joshua. That phrase there, thy faith has saved thee, uh, that just, you know, again, the whole story there reminds me of the, the story of Rahab. It was her faith that we're told in the New Testament that saved her. And again, God's grace extends to all. Uh, you know, as Pastor was just preaching, I think this past Wednesday night in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6-11, where, where Paul is, you know, gives this long list of, of uh, transgressions that people have done and, and uh, in verses 9-10 through 10 of, of 1 Corinthians 6. And then in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. And that's the beauty of it. it it's such were some of you, not such are some of you. Um, you know, again, those things don't have to follow us around. God's grace extends to all. Revelation 7, 9 describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says to people of all nations, of all languages, of all tongues, they're all going to give, be given white robes. They're all the same color. There aren't going to be multiple lines. There, aren't, there isn't a white line and an off-white line. And, I mean, there's none of that. Uh, there's no distinction once you're you're in the kingdom. There are no second-class citizens. There are no bus kids, if you want to, you know, put that label on people. I, I'm sometimes disturbed when I hear people, um, you know, with the different categorizations that they use to describe Christians. Um, that God doesn't look at it that way. We don't have those distinctions. And so Rahab, uh, you know, once she's placed her faith in God, she has no. She doesn't need to feel as though she is inferior and in any in any more or less deserving of his grace than the next person, as as the, as the case with all of us. Verse number two. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. So obviously, as, as good as these men were, they did not sneak in undetected. Um, the king was told of their arrival. Verse three. Someone had seen the men entering Rahab's house, so they send men to inquire. And verse 4, And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, There came in unto me, but I wist not whence they were. Now, now here we have the, the beginning of Rahab beginning to tell lies. And, you know, there's no way around it. Um, that's, that's what happened. Uh, you see lie number one. She says, I don't... I don't know where I don't know who they are and I don't know where they're from. You know, lie number two, verse number five. She says the men have left. That's a lie also. Another lie, she says, I don't know where they went. And then going on in verse five, she cleverly tells the soldiers another lie. If you hurry after them, you might be able to overtake them quickly if you pursue them very quickly. So it's just one lie after another to get the, the soldiers to, to be thrown off the, the trail of these men. And then in verse 6, she hid them under the flax, the stalks of grain, which this was the time of that particular harvest, and so it would have been um, common for all the roofs to have had barley and flax up on the roofs, so this wouldn't have been anything unusual that, that she had up there, and so it wouldn't have you know, looked conspicuous or anything like that. And then verse 7, the men believe her lies. You know, they're successful. They believe her lies. They pursue after the men and the spies escape. So, you know, the question, of course, is how do we reconcile her 
her actions with her with her lives. How do we reconcile that with her being commended in the in the book of Hebrews and James for for having great faith and specifically in the book of James for having put uh, actions behind her faith? Well, Webster's definition of a lie is to present false information with the intention of deceiving to convey a false image or impression. Appearances often lie. Now, remember, she's a new convert. She's a brand new convert. Um, She is a new convert as the the things that she has just recently heard. And she, you know, she makes that clear. She explains that to these two spies. As a new convert, she has, as Pastor was just going over, she has positional sanctification. That doesn't immediately translate to progressive sanctification, nor does it translate to perfect sanctification. None of us will be perfect until the Lord returns. We're all still sinners. And some would argue that everything that we do is still mixed with sin. And in James chapter 2, verse 25, let's turn there actually, just to... I'll have you take my word for it. In James chapter 2, verse 25, and, and of course James is, is having the discussion about uh, faith that works. We'll start in verse number 24. James says, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way. And you can turn back to the book of Joshua. Now, she's praised for having a faith that works. Uh, as Vernon McGee says, faith is revealed by actions, not necessarily perfect actions. And fortunately for us, God is able to look past our imperfections and, um, you know, find value in some of the things that we do, even though they're they're intermixed with sin. Um, her saying that she believed in their God was demonstrated by her actions. Uh, what she did was proof of her belief. And you know, the New Testament seems very clear on that that we all are supposed to have a life that proves that our belief, that our faith is genuine. That we're not merely to simply give lip service to our faith. And her actions were not merely choosing one country over another. Her actions were siding with God and His people. Um, Certainly this was an act of treason. It would have been punishable by death. Um, But, you know, it's it's not really so much her choosing... It certainly is her choosing Israel over Canaan, but that's really not the point. The point is that she's choosing God. That's what's commended. And, you know, lest we try to, uh, certainly in my case, I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that every lie I've ever told is completely unjustified and totally avoidable. I mean, I certainly couldn't claim to have ever been in a situation where uh, I would have, you know, felt like, wow, there was just no other option. I just had no other choice in the matter. I certainly could never, I could never claim that. Lying is condemned by an abundance of scriptures. I mean, we could just spend a lot of time. We're not even going to turn to those. But, of course, Exodus 20.16, Leviticus 19.11, Proverbs 12.22, Colossians 3.9. I mean, you could just go on and on. There's a long list of, 
scriptures in the Bible that make it perfectly acceptable that, or make it perfectly clear that, that lying was unacceptable. And, you know, some ask the question, well, uh, the, the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not kill, and yet uh, clearly exceptions are given for times of war, for things such as capital punishment. And so they say, well, you know, are there exceptions given for lying during times of war since there are exceptions given for killing? I mean, they're both part of the Ten Commandments. I, I don't I don't see it that way. I don't I don't see any justification in Scripture for for such an argument. I, I know of no occasions in Scripture where lying is condoned. I mean, you know, some may argue that it was here just by the absence of, of the condemnation of it. But. I don't think so. I, I think, again, I mean, all of our actions are mixed with sin to varying degrees, and yet God, you know, looks past our imperfections and accepts some of those things. We have to remember that that her newfound faith was baby faith. It wasn't, it was certainly genuine faith. It was, uh, but, it, you know, it was new faith. And uh, she wouldn't have had an opportunity, probably didn't have much opportunity to, to grow, um, and I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say the bar that the Bible is making the argument. It's not trying to present Rahab's faith as perfect faith. It's presenting it as genuine faith. Yeah, well, how do you define neighbor? (laughs) Yeah, no, I understand the argument. Well, like I said, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I can't find any examples in Scripture where I, I think that, you know, where I see that lying was clearly condoned or, or commended. Um, certainly there is an abundance of Scriptures where it isn't. Yeah, I think um, God takes lying very seriously, but certainly, you know, mercy is extended to all of us, uh, you know, as we're always growing in our faith and we're always falling short and we're always having to go and seek forgiveness. I mean, just here the, you know, the past few weeks, Pastor has been dealing with the, you know, the issue with Ananias and Sapphira, and of course they did drop dead as a result of their lies. And, um, yes, Pam. 
Right. Well, and there's a, you know, there's a, a, I mean, even in our world today, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to be dishonest. Um, You know, it's considered acceptable. I mean, people really just don't. I got a call Wednesday from a a software vendor, and um, my company had bought some software back in April, so, you know, probably six months ago. And it's a new version of some software that we have been using for 12 years. And I've used, the, you know, I have no complaints of the, about the software. I, I, I would wholeheartedly give a recommendation of the version of the software that I used for 12 years. We bought a new version of that software. So I got a call from a couple of salesmen on Wednesday, and they wanted me to give a recommendation to another company you know, to try to make a sale, to try to get that other company to, to purchase that software. I said, I have not used the new version of the software. We bought it six months ago. We had been so busy. I have not used it at all. I said, so I can't give a recommendation on that version. They said, well, don't worry about it. We'll help you out with what to say. <laughs> I said, I said, I'm trying to spare you guys an embarrassing situation. I said, because if you put me in this call... There's no getting around. I'm going to tell them that I haven't used this particular version of the software. I mean, that's just the way it is. So I said, you know, you're, I, I'm just trying to spare you of an embarrassing situation. And I, I, I have no doubt that once I begin using that software that I will be able to give that recommendation. But I said, I can't give it right now. I haven't used that version of the software. But, you know, they just were a little bit, you know, there was kind of silence on the end of the phone there. You know, it's like, that's just ex- it's just kind of understood. It's it's kind of accepted in our society that, you know, you do those types of things. And, you know, we have a lot of, I think it's tough if we're all honest, it's tough to be honest all the time. You know, I, you know, like Pam mentioned, Vernon McGee, I was listening to one of his teachings and he says, you know, I lie every day. He says, people, I pass people on the street every day and they ask me how I'm doing and I say fine. And he says, as soon as I walk past them, I say, say to myself, I'm not fine, I'm dying of cancer. But that's, you know, that's, you don't want to stop and give him his life story about how he's doing, you know, and all, all that kind of stuff. And and I get requests, you know, uh, for from you know, kids in the, in the youth ministry to fill out college recommendation forms. And some of the questions on those forms are kind of difficult, you know. They, what, kind of, what kind of student is this? What kind of young person is this? You know, what, what's their relationship with the Lord like, you know, and things like that. And so, you know... Um, I remember there was a, a man that used to go to this church just here a few years ago. He says he was telling the story about the first time he ever saw his dad tell a lie. He says, you know, they were out at the end of the driveway and salesman stopped by and he wanted to, to go in and visit with the, the, the guy's wife, the, the young boy's mother. And, and, and the dad said, oh, she's not home right now. And, and, and the, the guy that used to go to this church, who was the boy at the time, but dad, she's right in there. Son, go play. Son, go play. You know, and how many times, you know, tell them calls. Well, I, I tell them I'm not home. You know, I mean, 
There's all kinds of little lies that we tell and that we, we excuse and we, we try to justify. And, I, you know, like I said, I don't see that there are examples in Scripture where, you know, where that kind of behavior is acceptable. But, you know, it's, you know, my wife says, what do you think of this dress? Well, I have a I have a response now that I, I like that other one. That's usually the, <laughs> I mean you've all been there. Does this dress make me look fat? Well, what are you going to say? I mean, you got to be careful if we want to if we want to be honest. If we got to be perfectly honest. So, but I think one of the things that you know with with regard to this lying. Um, you know, because, you know, the question comes up, well, what other choice did she have? I think the beauty in the answer to that question is in, we don't know how God is going to work. Um, you know, we, we could spend a lot of time trying to think about what other alternatives she had, what other choice she had, but I think, I think that's futile. I think the beauty is in, in not knowing how God would have delivered her and the two spies had she told the truth. Um, you know, I think of the story of the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, you know, in, in Daniel 3.17, they, they said to the king, they said, our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But in verse 18, they said, if he doesn't, we will not bow down or serve thy gods or worship the golden image. They didn't presume that he would. They, they said, if he chooses not to deliver us, that's fine too. And God doesn't always choose to deliver. He didn't choose to deliver Stephen when Stephen was given his defense. Um, so, I don't know that we should spend a lot of time trying to think about how she would have had a, another option or another alternative. Um, you know, the same God that delivered the three men from the fiery furnace or, or who delivered Daniel from the, the lion's den could have figured out a way to deliver Rahab and the two spies if she had decided to tell the truth. Uh, so, I, I, you know, how he would have done it, it's not up for me to know. I don't need to know. Uh, Many times I've prayed and I've said, Lord, here's option A and here's option B, and I'm particularly interested to know which one you're going to choose. And God chooses C. He chooses something that I never even thought of. And I, I mean, thought never crossed my mind, and I could give examples of that. That's the beauty in it. God's ways are not our ways. We don't have to have the answer to the question, what would Rahab have done? What other choice would she have had? How would God have delivered her and the two spies if she had told the truth? You know, God would have, God could have done that. Or he could have chosen to do as he did with Stephen and not delivered them. And he still would have been righteous. Paul says in Romans 3.8, don't say, let us do evil that good may come. He says, you know, don't go down that road. Don't, don't try to make that argument. So, you know, my, I, I just think that 
you know, even in light of her having been praised for her faith, even though it was mixed with lies, her actions were mixed with lies. I think it would be very foolish and dangerous for us to become very comfortable with lying or very be comfortable with sinning in any regard. I think uh, that's, you know, God deals very severely with those types of things. I mean, think of David. You know, he did told three lies. You know, he went and had this affair with someone. Well, the first thing he did was told the guy to go home with the intentions of deceiving so that it would so that it would appear that the child was her husband's. And then that didn't work, so he got the guy drunk, told him to go home again. That didn't work either. So then he has the guy killed and marries her again to deceive, to make it look as though the child was legitimate, to make it look as though the child was conceived during his marriage. And God was very God dealt very severely with David for all of those acts of deception and acts of lies. So, you know, and again, we have Ananias and Sapphira, so... It would just, you know, it's foolish on our part to think that, that you know, that it's excusable. Um, again, God, you know, He overlooks a lot of things that we do, and we can be very grateful for that. But that doesn't give us an excuse to make them, a, a, you know, a pattern of our life. Verse number eight. And, and again, you know, we, I probably spent we probably spent too much more time on that than we should have because, again, the point here is she's commended for her faith. Um, you know, her faith, her, her faith was put into action. Her actions weren't necessarily perfect, but her actions demonstrated her heart. And, you know, God looks on the heart, which is, you know, the beauty of it. Um, a lot of people would have looked at her as, you know, as the Pharisee in the story we read in Luke chapter 7. Oh, this woman, you know, how you dare even associate with her. God didn't look at her that way. So she purposely helps them, verse, verse number 9, and she said unto them, I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. You know, as Matthew Henry points out, God probably used her sinful profession to, you know, give the, the spies a lot of valuable information that they wouldn't have been able to obtain from a lot of other sources because, you know, given her profession, she probably encountered people coming and going from a lot of different places, a lot of different countries, had heard a lot of different stories, and the stories that she heard are what caused her to grow in her faith in the Lord. She had heard about how the God, how that God was leading the, the children of Israel and, and, you know, conquering their enemies and performing miracles for them. And she attests to those miracles. Uh, she does what Psalm 145 tells all of us to do. We're to speak of God's mighty acts. We're to proclaim them. We're to tell people about God's miracles. Verse number 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And verse number 11, and as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. So Rahab believed all of the things that she mentions there. She didn't see any of them. She didn't see any of them. She, she heard about them. And, then, and that's our faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. None of us witnessed the resurrection. We weren't 
among the 500 who witnessed the resurrection. None of us have seen heaven, and yet we believe it exists. This is why she's commended her faith. She didn't see any of these things. Many of the Israelites saw those things, and yet they were the ones that were reprimanded. Some of the ones that walked through the parting of the Red Sea were the ones whose faith was uh, non-existent and wanted to go back to Egypt and the ones that God condemned to death in, in the wilderness. And so, you know, I mean, as, as the Bible says, you know, blessed are those who don't see and believe. You know, and that's that's again why her faith is commended. Um, a lot of people are stubborn. You know, I mean, it wouldn't matter what you showed them; they would they would have resistance. You know, if they were, you know, Jesus makes that point. You know, if men were sent back from the dead, they, there's people that still wouldn't believe, even though they think they would. Um, Rahab, you know, didn't fall into that category. She didn't require first. You know, she didn't say, well, I have to see it for myself to believe it. That wasn't her attitude at all. She had already believed it. And she hadn't even heard it directly from the Israelites. She had just heard it, you know, as we would say, through the grapevine from various sources. And the people were, no, you know, the... the um, the people were disheartened. They were discouraged. I mean, this would have, this was going to, would have been extremely valuable information for the spies. They went back, and that's what they told Joshua. Boy, yeah, we have them, we have them scared, you know. And it isn't isn't it interesting to see the contrast there. God's miracles, how they affect people in different ways. Rahab, they affected in such a way as that she she believes God, she turns to God. Yet other people, God's miracles just harden their hearts. They just get, you know, like Pharaoh and, and the king here. They just put up a, more and more resistance. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the contrast. She says here in verse 11, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. I mean, that's her way of acknowledging that she believes there's only one God, one true God. There are not room for multiple gods. That's what, what it means here when she says in heaven and earth. I mean, that, that He is Lord over all. There, there isn't room for multiple gods. I remember several years ago now when we went on, when we were on visitation, and we were, uh, Charity and I had knocked on a, on a door of a, a guy, a Hindu guy. And he had come to the door and, and he, he was very content to talk with us for, for 10 or 15 minutes. He came out and he was, um, yeah, he was pretty agitated. He was very confrontational, but he, he was willing to talk to us. And he said, you know, and, and I, I suspect clearly he had been witness to before. He said, you guys are very narrow-minded. You believe there's only one God in one way. I said, well, yeah, you're, you're correct about that. I mean, you, you, you understand that part correctly. I said, yeah, the Bible makes it clear that there is only one way. Jesus is the only way. He says, no, yeah, there's, there's many ways. There's many, many gods. And so he just was very... But Rahab didn't have that problem. She was willing to acknowledge that all of the gods of the Canaanites were now considered worthless. They were nothing. And 
I remember that. Uh, the sad part, I remember that, that when we were talking to that Hindu man, his wife, she came to the door a couple of times and she said, get back in the house, you know. And he, you know, he was, he, he was kind of getting mad at her for nagging him, you know. He said, don't worry, I'm not getting converted. Well, sadly, he was right about that too. <laughs> he was correct about a lot of things. But, you know, Rahab was saved because of her belief that there's only one God and that there are, that he's, he's a jealous God and that he's not willing to share his glory and honor with any, any other gods. God saves the worst of sinners. Paul, you know, again, as we, as I said, first Timothy 1.15, Paul said, I am the chief sinner. And, you know, persecutor of Christians, throwing them into jail, you know, holding the coats while they stoned Stephen to death. Um, and yet God, God's grace was extended to him in the same way that it was extended to Rahab. Any, anyone have any comments? We're going to have to stop there. And we'll pick up with verse number 12 next week. Anybody have any any additional? Yes, Linda. Right. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point.